Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the hope we have of heaven where you will wipe away every tear and make all things new. And give us heart and mind and eyes to see the truth and to live by it every day and to keep our hope and our lives fixed on you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we are continuing our series in Second Peter, looking at six qualities of a fruitful life in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And today is about self-control. And the first thing to ask, I think, for all of us to look at ourselves and say, have you ever been out of control? Have you ever been out of control? You were just so mad, so outraged, you did something stupid or dangerous or maybe harmful? Or maybe a different type of out of control. Maybe it is thoughts or emotions that you can't shake. Maybe it's bitterness or resentment. These can, be, these can be hard to shake out of your mind. Or maybe you're just, you're just frustrated with yourself because like I, there's this good I want to do, I know I have to do it, and I just I can't make myself do it all the time. And each of us will experience this to some degree. But the, and how much it affects your life depends a lot on how much self-control you exercise. Self-control is an essential quality for a fruitful life. This is taught throughout the Bible. We look back at Proverbs. It says in chapter 25, verse 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So if you are a city, then your self-control is, is the wall of defense around your person, around your spirit, around your life. And this is why the apostle Peter, in the letter today, 2 Peter, this is why he lists self-control as, as a quality essential to a fruitful life. And we're going to read from 2 Peter here, verses 5, 6, and 8. Peter says this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And then verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I got the big main idea of all this is that if you don't have self-control, sin will take control. If you don't have self-control, sin will take control. And, and God has made this very clear. He's been teaching mankind this from the beginning. You go back to starting when he, he warned Cain about his murderous intentions against his brother Abel. We look at Genesis 4, verse 7. God, talking to Cain here, he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And this is why self-control matters. Why you can't just do whatever you please, whatever comes natural to you. Try that while driving. Let nature take over. 
right? <laughs> do, you, do you just go wherever gravity takes you when you drive? No, no steering, just let gravity? No, you would quickly end up in a ditch. Or do you let every gust of wind just change your direction while driving? No, you would very quickly crash. And so it, if we compare these things, you know, gravity, hey, it's natural, right? Gravity's natural, but it's not always going to lead you to a good place. And if we compare that then, you know, you should not let your desires or strong emotions determine your choices. If you just follow a desire, because, just because it's there, it might lead you into a ditch. And if you let the gust of a strong emotion just, you know, impulsively change your mind, that might blow you into a dangerous place in life. So if you don't have self-control, sin will take control. And sin in our hearts is why people keep doing self-destructive things. It's why people, we've all met someone like this, right? Their excuse, I just can't stop myself. They keep lying, keep cheating, keep drinking, keep fighting, even with people they care about. Well, why can't they stop? Well. The Apostle Paul explained this in Romans chapter 7. He says in verse 15, talking about himself, his own struggle with sin, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then verse 19 and 20, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And this is a problem all humanity has. We all start out with sin in our heart. And sin is deceptive. It deceives you, it gets you to lie to yourself, and it leads you off into that ditch. Romans, verse, uh, Romans 7 again, verse 11 now, says this, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And the prophet Jeremiah, he warns us this, 17, chapter 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Meaning, who can know when it's, when, when it's being good or it actually fair? Who can actually determine that? So sometimes you cannot trust your heart. Not every last thing it wants is good. And it is, it's dangerous to have no self-control. It's dangerous for you, for your own life. And Second Peter here, Peter talks about this. He describes these people and their outcome. In Second Peter chapter 2, Verses 17 through 22. I'll find this here. So 17 through 22. He's describing these people who have, who have no self-control. He says, They are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What a word for our generation. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And I suspect nearly all of you know someone whose life has been ruined because they could not find self-control. Someone who's lost their job, their family, their living because they couldn't stop drinking or so, so on and so on. I think of one of my sailors when I was serving in the Navy, and he, he was a skilled technician. He had a good heart, but he could not say no to friends who were a bad influence. And he'd go out with them, and he would stay out with them, and he'd keep getting in trouble. He was, he was loyal to the wrong people. And, and once he was pulled over at a train stop, he, he was drunk, and he had parked the car while waiting for the train to go by. And he fell asleep in his car, and he did not wake up until the police were rapping on his window. <laughs> that was uh, an, an unpleasant uh, military discipline board I had to sit through for him. But he was one of the lucky ones, because it, at least it didn't end in an accident. At least it didn't end in tragedy. But when he did that over and over, over and over, we had, we had to step in and protect him because he wouldn't protect himself. But the only way we can protect him is to say, um, for a little while now, you can't leave the ship. A couple weeks, you're, you're not going anywhere. You know, because that, that's the only way we can protect him if he won't exercise self-control for himself. And I think here, as I've thought about this and looking around us here, in, in our society, I observe, observe, <laughs> four threats to your self-control. And the first of all is sinful emotions, rage, resentment, bitterness. Emotions like these, they will lead you to do stupid, dangerous things, self-destructive things. These emotions are powerful. They give, they give you tunnel vision and they delude you. They, they delude how you think about yourself and about everyone around you. The second is sinful desires, also called lust. This is wanting something that you're not supposed to have or it's, not, it's just not the right time, right place, right way for you to have it. But you want it so badly, you lie to yourself and you justify it to yourself. And then when you start to live through the consequences of that bad decision, you, can, you continue to blame others and lie to yourself because you started out lying to yourself. So that is another threat there. The, the third threat is cynicism. And I, I suspect a lot of us have dealt with this. I've definitely dealt with this. Cynicism threatens your, your will to do good. 
Because you've been disappointed so many times, you've been burned out so many times, you stop believing that doing good can make a difference. Or you feel like, hey, my, my life is already wrecked. You know, I've already committed that sin, so why stop? Or, you know, hey, that ship has already sailed. I've already lost that purity. So why repent and commit to holiness? Why bother? Or just healthy habits. You know, why, why go to church? Why read my Bible? Why pray? Cynicism poisons motivation. It stops you before you even start. The fourth is triviality. Triviality. If we think something is trivial, then you think it doesn't matter. It doesn't really do any good or any harm. So it just doesn't matter whether you do it or not. And we are an instant gratification culture. We want a, a benefit right away. So if reading your Bible or praying doesn't have an immediate, obvious benefit, you'll think to you, you'll assume, well, it doesn't really matter if I do it or not. On the other hand, you know, if you're have that, you're scrolling social media on your phone or playing that game on your phone, and you might think, hey, well, it, it's trivial. It's harmless. It's not evil. It makes me feel good. You know, it's got an immediate feel good to it. So I'm going to keep doing it because, it's, because it doesn't matter. It's trivial. But if the net effect is that that trivial thing is consuming more and more and more of your life instead of something actually good and productive, then that is not good for you. Now maybe, now maybe it, it is helping you cope by distracting you from a problem, but it is not solving that problem and it is not improving your life. Godly self-control offers hope and change. Remember verse eight, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Self-control will keep your life from being ineffective or unfruitful. Also, God has power for the self-control you need. Verse 3, and we're repeating this every week because it's so good. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God's divine power has granted you everything you need for self-control through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And now the path to self-control in life is either going to be the path of pain or the path of God's grace. Because one path to self-control is the path of pain. Because when you must control your thoughts and your emotions and your body because you, because it's, in order to survive, you will find a way. You will do it if it's a matter of survival. And so this might come to you through, through poverty, through violence, or through intentional training like the military. But the path of pain doesn't work forever. If, there, if there's no positive goal, there's no positive end thing, it does not work forever. The path of pain only produces slaves or tyrants. And I've I've lived there. I've seen both of this. I've been both of this. It produces slaves who are not motivated unless there's a threat of pain, and yet they are becoming increasingly numb to that pain. Or it produces tyrants, control freaks who are determined to never again be under the control 
of another person. And so they are exercising self-control to gain power and independence. But self-control does not make them good. The path of pain will not make you good. It might, might cause you to grow in self-control, but it's not going to be good. God's path to self-control is self-denial. And there's a good reason Peter lists faith, virtue, and knowledge before self-control, because you need all of these if your self-control is going to be healthy and godly. Godly self-control is granted to you when you receive Jesus by faith. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin over your life. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So if you are in Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. His Holy Spirit is in you and is now the power in your life for self-control and godliness. In Galatians 5, 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the Holy Spirit in you will produce self-control. You will start to question the old sinful desires. You will find that you have more control over your mind and your emotions and your spirit. You're not as easily provoked to rage or frustration you will find that even when your heart has not caught up to what you know is true and good, you can still choose to do what is right. And I read this somewhere that choosing to do what you know is right when your heart is not in it is not hypocrisy. It's maturity. Now, the world will try to convince you that self-control restricts your freedom, it restricts your spirit. The, the walls described in Proverbs 25 are, they just lock you in. But the walls are there to lock the devil out. The devil tries all sorts of Trojan horses to get into your heart. He will offer you forbidden pleasures. He will try to convince you, oh, poor you. Look at all that you are missing out. But the devil only wants to take you captive and destroy you. And I, I think of it kind of like self-control is like the, the plastic wrap you see around young trees at the base of young trees. You've seen those around town here. And, you know, is that plastic wrap around that tree, is that there to keep the tree from growing any wider? No, that's not why it's there. It's there to stop the deer and the bugs from eating away the bark of that tree because it's still young. It's there to protect the tree so it can grow properly and live a healthy life. And so your self-control is like that. So, another thing here that when we talk about why virtue and knowledge are needed for your self-control to be good, it's because they inform the aim of your self-control. They give you that good thing to aim for. Aim to become like Jesus in all righteousness and holiness. Deny yourself so that you can love and serve others the way God has served you. And then the motivation for your self-control is the love of God and the hope of heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, the one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. 
And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the love of God, when you know how much he loves you, that is a, that's a shield over your mind and over your heart and spirit. It shields you against every provocation, every insult, every attack. And the love of God, it's your joy and it's your life. If he loves you so much that he gave his son to die for you, then anything he asks, wants for you must be good. And anything he warns you against must be bad for you. Now the other motivation here, our hope of heaven. This is again from 2 Peter chapter 3. And this is Peter's conclusion here, starting verse 11. Peter says, Since all these things are, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the, the heavenly bodies will, will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So why self-control? Because we have our eyes on the prize. We know what is eternal and what is not. And in the new heavens, the new earth, we will know it was worth it. We, you know, we sang that earlier about the hymn of heaven. We will see that it was worth it. And heaven will be full satisfaction. So in this life, you, you can deny yourself because God has given you everything you need. You can sacrificially love others because in God you are full. And you can live in self-control because God is bringing you to heaven. And you want to get there. You want to see yourself and all humanity restored. And also because you are not letting the devil back in. And you live in self-control because you want to be an agent of his love and of eternal life. Now, how, how do we grow in self-control, right? Okay, the more, even more practically, how do we grow in self-control? Well, first, get to know Jesus. He is the perfect example of self-control motivated by pure love. The better you understand him, the better you will understand the nature of self-control. Secondly, identify where you need to grow. What, what is it you're doing or, or not doing? What is godly about it? What is not godly about it? And, and is there a look for it a godly example to follow? And then third, make a specific plan. It, this, is, this is just like anything else you know you need to be doing. Make a step-by-step -step plan. If it's something you need to do, make a step-by-step -step plan for how you're going to do it. And if it's something you're going to stop doing, make a step-by-step -step plan for what you're going to do instead. Uh, you know, no, no one, um, you, you know, if we would say, I'm, okay, I'm self-control, I'm going to start working out, I'm going to build muscles. Okay, well, if, it's not going to go very far if you don't have a specific plan about what muscles and what workouts and what things you're going to do and what time of day you're going to do it. And any area of self-control is like this. Need a plan. And fourth, practice small things. A Navy SEAL once uh, gave a graduation speech in which he told the college graduates, Make your bed. Why did he say that? Well, because 
We need to do it every day. It's easy. It requires self-control. And it sets the right attitude for the whole rest of your day. You have started your day by showing yourself that you can do something needful and good. Even if you don't feel like it. And with every small choice, you are growing in self-control. You are choosing to live more effectively, more fruitfully. So, look at your life. Pick a habit. Pick a virtue. Pick an idea. Pick an emotion. Apply these things to it. And start growing in self-control. And last of all, bring every failure, bring every setback, bring every disappointment to the cross of Jesus and to his grace. Because through the forgiveness in Jesus, your life is not a wreck. You are pure and clean and you can live like it. So self-control, it is not a limit on your freedom. It, it, It frees you to enjoy what really matters in life by protecting you from evil. And uh, these Galatians 5, verses 1 and 13 say this very well. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that in Jesus you've granted us self-control over our, over our mind, our hearts, our, our lives, so that sin does not reign over us and have power over us. For we can, we can be sober and alert and self-controlled and mindful. We can choose to live more godly, more fruitfully, more effective in this life. We can follow after you and become more like you. And pray that uh, this knowledge and truth would give us hope each day. Give us strength to to choose it and that that we would just depend on you and look on you, look to you uh, for our every, for our strength and our need to do this. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.